0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government
1: Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching. Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The approval process for FedRAMP will get a jolt of automation. The director of the Technology Transformation Services, GSA, Dave Zvenich, says the agency will invest in automation for security authorizations. FedScoop reports the agency will also invest in making agencies more aware of existing authorities to operate. The Internal Revenue Service will use a special hiring authority to hire tech talent faster and pay them more. The hiring authority lets the agency hire up to 40 people at a time and bring them into the agency in six to eight weeks. Federal News Network reports the employees can stay at the agency for up to four years. The Marine Corps will test self-driving shuttles at its air station Miramar in California. The shuttles will move people and packages all over the base. NextGov reports the base will host an electric mobility symposium to showcase the technology June 24th. The Defense Department isn't giving up on the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure contract. It writes in a new court filing that its defense of the contract could take several more months. Joe Jordan is CEO at Actaparo. He's former administrator of federal procurement policy. Joe, it's great to see you again. What do you take away from this court filing, understanding that you're not a practicing lawyer, what do you take away from an acquisition perspective from this document?
2: Woo, Francis, this is getting good. I mean, there are no lightsaber-wielding paladin, but this Jedi is just as entertaining. Oh my God. Um, So look, a couple months ago we talked, the court was gonna decide whether or not to sustain or dismiss Amazon's protest of this $10 billion cloud services award to Microsoft uh, in late April. The court came back and said, we're not dismissing any of this. It can go forward and gave the, the parties, Amazon on one side, the government, and Microsoft on the other 30 days to figure out how to proceed in terms of setting a schedule and what goes in the administrative record and what interviews can occur and things like that. And that 30 days was up. They did not come to any conclusion. Those two parties did not come to any um, agreement. And so the court said, All right, well, I'm setting the schedule. And uh, the judge said, You know, you have till June 18th to give us um, kind of what you think the next steps were going to be. And then, uh, you know, there's a little bit more discussion till mid July. But, you know, this thing is going on. And one of the interesting parts is. You know, the Defense Department had previously kind of hinted at and indicated hey, if this protest uh, isn't dismissed, we may have to just forego the whole thing and, you know, figure out another solution. But, Their lawyers' language in these filings say, you know, they're in it to win it and they're sticking to their guns too, Uh, no pun intended. So, you know, I'm very curious to see how this plays out. And for the first time in, I don't know, history, but certainly my memory, you could have a former president deposed as part of a, you know, procurement protest, which is, you know, fun to watch. Uh,
1: First, Joe, two words, less coffee. Um, what do you think is the most important thing here that that's an indicator of the seriousness of the Defense Department? Is it just the fact that they filed this in the first place, or is there language that they used that indicates uh, their level of seriousness?
2: Yeah, I mean, like you said at the top, I'm not a lawyer and I did not sleep in the Holiday Inn Express last night, but... You know, when I look at the language that uh, the judge wrote in in compared against other court of federal claims, decisions or uh, orders that I've seen in the past. Yeah, it's clear that, you know, she's saying this has merit to proceed. Whether or not, you know, the protest will be sustained, who knows. But, um, you know, she's saying, no, I'm not dismissing any part of this. And, you know, we're going to go forward. and You know, the Defense Department, along with Microsoft, is saying, hey, we need to get this done quickly. And and they talk, you talk about words, you know, they talked about the need for this cloud services contract for national security reasons. But I got to be honest, when I consult with a commercial client and I say, hey, why is this suboptimal process, you know, going on the way it is? And they say, well, that's the way we've always done it. I know it's not a great answer. When you say, all right, DOD, why do you need this to go so fast instead of getting to what might be new and enlightening information? And they say, it's for national security or it's for the warfighter. Then they're probably not relying on the best facts and data set. And so it will be really interesting to see how this administrative record is built.
1: So I I know you can't speak specifically about JEDI. You don't have inside information. But in general, when you have one side with the vendor who continues and continues and continues to pursue uh, a, a protest in venue after venue after venue, and you have the government side continuing and continuing and continuing to stake their turf, what does that say, and is there a, are, are there trends about how those kinds of protests tend to wind up?
2: You know, that's one of the things about this protest that's so interesting. You know, it it is unique in that I haven't seen other protests where the vendor, the the losing vendor, goes this strongly in terms of protest after protest. I mean, Microsoft has won this twice. uh, And, you know, this contract was put out, the RFP was put out in 2018 and, you know, Microsoft still hasn't made a dollar and doesn't have any authority to proceed. Um, so that's you know unique in a vendor sp- in Amazon spending this much money to go after something where the result is very unlikely to be, okay, sure, now we award it to Amazon. You know, Success is far more likely to be, now we're blowing the whole thing up and starting over. And it's not like the government customer is going to be super psyched with Amazon having you know fought this battle for three years. So that's why on that side, it's unique. On the government side, You know, them digging in their heels like this really is indicative more of trying to sustain and create precedent around their right to make their own decision in a case like this. In terms of the actual, you know, effect on the Department of Defense's ability to procure cloud services, look, every single branch of the military has already moved on and is – you know, standing up their own cloud service contracts. The Air Force has 60 different cloud service contracts, about half with Amazon and half with Microsoft, by the way, comprising over 4,000 terabytes of storage capability. So it's not like, you know, there isn't anything going on. And think about how much the technology has changed for cloud services from 2018 and before when the contract uh, requirements were being written and now. But I think the Defense Department is none too pleased with how aggressively this protest has been handled by the unsuccessful offerer and is trying to kind of defend it for those reasons more than practical
1: effect. Uh, 30 seconds, Joe. Is it possible that since this is unique, as you termed it, that the solution could be unique too? the solution could be something we haven't seen before rather than a traditional winner or loser?
2: Yes, absolutely could be. You know, everything's on the table. You know, the classic solution is scrap the procurement and start over. But nobody really thinks that's feasible given the size and scope of this. So could you see, you know, a settlement where, you know, the Defense Department says, sure, sure. okay, instead of one awardee, it's two and it's both of you, but nobody else. And now we're done. I never really seen that, but I I would put decent odds against something like that being the outcome here and uh, we'll just have to wait and see
1: joe jordan thanks very much as always remember less coffee
2: <laughs> never francis
1: coming next cyber deadlines causing heartburn for government leaders straight ahead on government matters that calendar disappears as the work piles up you're watching wjla 24 7 news Deadlines are approaching for agencies to comply with provisions of the White House executive order on cyber. Those deadlines could cause cause heartburn for agencies that don't make them. Ari Schwartz is Managing Director of Cybersecurity Services at Venable. He's former Special Assistant to the President for, and Senior Director for Cybersecurity. He calls the new EO the most ambitious cybersecurity effort in decades in the Washington Post. Ari, I guess I don't have to ask you what you think of the executive order. You made your, uh, your thoughts pretty clear to the Post. Why do you think it's such a big
3: deal? Well, there's just a lot in there, right? I mean, this is uh, – I remember when we were trying to do executive orders – uh, in the Obama administration, we had six, something that was 16 pages, and it was considered too long. Um, and this is, uh, you know, 52, 52 pages. We're talking about 54 pages, I think it ended up. Um, and uh, it has 50 different actions in it that are uh, all tied, um, you know, to different actions that, that agencies need to take because um, it's mostly focused on the – uh, on the response to the, the two incidents that happened at the end of the Trump administration, the Solar Winds case and the Hafnium case, um, that are uh, uh, you know were, were had some impact on the federal government and the federal government's ability to respond to cyber incidents. So there's a lot in there about what uh, agencies should have in place and what how response should work. And some of that will bleed over into the private sector as well. Uh, A lot of it's aimed at contractors, and that will uh, directly have an effect on the private sector.
1: I mentioned those deadlines because when the EO first came out, the buzz kind of in the government community was, wow, these deadlines are going to approach quickly. We need to really get on it. I imagine that was part of the point. Uh, But with these deadlines approaching, who's doing what, in your view, or who should be doing what, to comply with these deadlines and and meet this both the spirit and the letter of the executive order.
3: Well, there there are a number of things that uh, DHS has to put in place through CISA, um, and that uh, NIST has to put in place. But once those go into effect, and some of those are you know things that are coming out in the, in the, this month uh, or, or within the next uh, 30 days, that then agencies are going to have to start acting, uh, putting in place, making sure that they put into place. Things that are tied to uh, uh, z- the zero uh, knowledge e- efforts, um, to the the uh, a lot of um, efforts around uh, the what what the contractors are doing in the space, um, things like uh, the endpoint detection, making sure that they have endpoint detection in place, that they're ready to be able to respond, et cetera. Those uh, I think those areas all. Uh, come back to uh, you know, t- tying what what agents, the way agencies react here.
1: Do those efforts, in your view, Ari, get us back to a more secure defensive posture, or do they set the groundwork for maybe a more proactive approach to cybersecurity, or maybe it's a combination of both?
3: Uh, it's really about look being able to look and say. That at the basic level, agencies have the the protections that they need in place in their supply chain, and that they're ready to respond in the right way. Um, I think when, when something bad happens, the the idea the idea is we're getting away from the borders being the prote- only protections. Um, a, a lot of times in the past, I mean, when I when I say that this is the most uh, ambitious thing that's been done in decades in this space, you, you look back. Uh, decades ago to CNCI, which was the Bush administration's attempt to do this. And they did a great job in terms of expanding the scope. But really, you still had uh, the DOJ, DHS, and uh, DOD being the defenders out there. And this is more about getting the agencies uh, more strong. Some of that was done after the OPM incident, but uh, still not enough to really make sure that the agencies are strong enough inside their agency, not just protecting at the border. And that you don't necessarily trust the, the people that are on your network, even if it looks like it might be someone that should be there.
1: You used a phrase a moment ago that I think is important, although you might not have thought about it when you said it. And that is that it, it's important for agencies to have these these protections in place when something bad happens. That assumption has changed over time, hasn't it? Do you think there is a comprehensive understanding that breaches? like we've seen will happen and the response is important? Or do you think there are still too many people in of the mindset of we have to prevent everything bad from ever happening in the cyber realm?
3: I mean, incidents happen every day and, you, and, and at this point, and every agency knows that that deals with this. And so the question is, how bad is it? And, and did we stop it all? Um, Sometimes it looks like it's been stopped and sometimes uh, but but it hasn't. Other times it looks like it has has been stopped and it actually has. So you need to be able to investigate and go into great detail here and be able to make sure that you know what's actually happening on your network uh, in ways that you haven't necessarily had to do in the past. Um, And so this is really making sure that that's happening, that you that that you have. That uh, this kind of they use the term zero trust here, where they're trying to get at that you don't trust anyone else on your network, um, right? As the as the basis, um, and and I think that goes for incidents too, right? That when an incident happens, that you're ready uh, to be able to respond to it, um, and that you don't necessarily think that you know, the the first gl- glimpse isn't necessarily the final gl- glimpse.
1: About thirty seconds left, Ari. Beyond the deadlines that are approaching, what else will you watch?
3: Well, I think the main piece in here that catches my interest is really on this, uh, this software supply chain, as they call it, or the, the software lifecycle here, where NIST is going to be coming up with a bunch of standards over the next year or tying together the standards that they have to really influence the way government buys software, um, the way contractors buy software, and which will influence the entire uh, way that we look at software security uh, around the world.
1: Ari Schwartz thanks very much as always great to see you. Good to see you too. Up next agencies making their funding disappear the wrong way. Straight ahead on Government Matters four big agencies losing billions of dollars. Don't forget if you miss an episode of Government Matters you can find it on our website govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The new Biden administration budget includes a flat Defense Department top line and increases for most civilian agencies. If historic trends hold, though, almost $24 billion of the money agencies get will go back to the Treasury at the end of the fiscal year. Jeff Arkins, Acting Director for Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Jeff, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Um, you're looking at canceled appropriations. Who cancels them and why do they get canceled?
4: Thanks for having me here today. Uh, A canceled appropriation occurs when uh, Congress provides money to federal agencies through appropriations, appropriation acts, appropriation laws, and they specify not just how much an agency will receive, but also uh, how long they'll have to use that money. So usually how the process works is agencies have one year to uh, either spend the money, or make commitments to spend the money, to obligate those funds through a a contract, for example, that will be uh, fulfilled in years years on. Then they generally have five years to fulfill those commitments, and at the end of those five years, any funds that have gone unused become cancelled. You
1: focused on four agencies in particular where you discovered most of this money, the canceled money that goes back to the is coming from. What are those agencies and why are those agencies not, I mean, not as good, I guess, at getting their money spent?
4: We We looked at data from 2009 to 2019. And as you said, there were four agencies that accounted for for most, about 86% of the canceled appropriations during that time. And those were the Departments of Agriculture, Defense, Health and Human Services, and the Department of the Treasury. Uh, Those agencies also had the largest appropriations to start with. So if we look at their rate of cancellation, it's not all that different from from the government-wide rate. Uh, For example, the Department of Defense, had almost half of all the canceled appropriations, but they also had by far the largest amount of appropriations. And so around 1.8 percent of the, uh, the Department of Defense appropriations eventually were canceled. That's not that different from the government-wide rate of 1.6 percent. So it's, uh, a lot of it is driven by just the size of those four agencies and the amount of money that Congress provides to them.
1: It's logical, the way that you lay it out there, that it's proportional based on the amount of money that agencies get. You found some commonalities among the reasons that agencies wind up giving this money back. What were those?
4: There's a few reasons that we found. Um, In some cases, agencies don't wind up needing as much money as they initially anticipated. Uh, so an example of that, the Department of Agriculture administers the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which which we commonly know as food stamps, and they make estimates about how much money they'll need to cover all of the beneficiaries who would uh, apply for and participate in the program. And sometimes the factors that drive that change, the economy improves, uh, unemployment rates aren't as are higher uh, than expected, and so not as many people participate. And by result, not as much funding is, is needed, and ultimately that funding will get canceled and returned to the taxpayers.
1: As I read through your work, Jeff, it strikes me that uh, some of this, at least, as you just described, can be attributed to the, just the fluidity of the programs that this money is intended to fund. Is that, is that a fair observation on my part? Is a lot of this just the ebb and flow of whatever the service is that the agency is supposed to provide to the citizen?
4: Yeah, I think that's a a fair assessment. Sometimes uh, costs are are harder to predict than others. So if an agency has most of its its costs or most of its spending for personnel, for example, salaries and benefits, that's fairly predictable. An agency knows generally how many people uh, it employs and how much money those people are going to make. And some agencies engage in contracts for goods and services. Those might not be delivered for a number of years. And things can change. Um, Things may wind up costing less than anticipated or there's not as great of a need three years from now as there was when the money is appropriated. And in those cases, uh, sometimes agencies can redirect funds. Other times they can't, though. And so those funds eventually go canceled.
1: Are there best practices for avoiding cancellation or does the fluidity that you just described mean that it's bound to happen and there's not much to do about it?
4: We did look at that question and we saw some common themes among the agencies we look at. Um, Agencies can review canceled appropriations or rather review their funding for risk of canceled appropriations during uh, their sort of standard budget process. So look at things to make sure that um, contracts are, are staying on target, uh, if they provide money to, to grantees through, through grant programs, which a lot of federal agencies do, monitor those grantees to make sure that the money is being spent uh, as it's laid out uh, in the law and in, in different program uh, structures. And so there are a number of things that agencies can do. And some agencies also have very specific procedures to look, and, uh, to look at appropriations to make sure they can minimize how much ultimately is canceled.
1: We have about a minute left, Jeff. What would you watch moving forward, or is this something that you took a one-off at and, and it's something that if Congress calls you back to it, you'll examine it again?
4: this was the first time that the GAO has looked at canceled appropriations on a government-wide basis, and um, from our understanding, maybe the first time uh, that this issue's been looked at on a government-wide level. Uh, I think what's important is that agencies continue to monitor their funding and the resources that that Congress provides and that the administration provides to make sure they can take steps to minimize canceled appropriations. Not sure it's realistic that there'll be no canceled appropriations, but the lower that percentage is, you know, the more effective and and, and functioning the budget process can be and the better information that Congress can have to make funding decisions for all of our national priorities.
1: Jeff Arkin, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate uh, your time to talk about your work.
4: Thank you so much for having me here today.
1: You can find a link to Jeff's work at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. You get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's what I want to, here's where I want to
1: go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, If you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball?
0: Well, I think I think the idea here is to if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry that you're asking for the right kind of services if you're still stuck on an rfp or a format that asks for older technology there are and and there are unfortunately francis a number of rfps and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff and it's it's like the the to to some extent i'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned you ought to